At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 304th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Healthy food is something that everybody wants. Delicious and nutritious, and right outside your own door is even better. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit IWANTTOGARDEN.COM and you will receive our free webinar about seven key factors you need to know to grow your own healthy food. Today on our podcast, we have someone who shares about feminine approach to farming and how it can benefit humanity. We're talking to Karen Lanier about the wisdom and wonders of women farmers. Karen is a naturalist, documentarian, teacher, artist, and gardener who explores the interconnections of nature and culture. She holds degrees in photography, foreign language, conservation studies, and documentary studies, as well as a professional environmental educator certificate. She worked as a seasonal park ranger in the state and national parks across the U.S. before settling in Kentucky, and her AmeriCorps volunteer experience with Seedleaf, a community gardening nonprofit. That helped her shift her migratory perspective on life toward putting down roots. Karen writes a weekly column for Hobby Farms online magazine. She edited and co-authored the book Wildlife in Your Garden and authored the book The Woman Hobby Farmer. Welcome to the show today, Karen. Are you ready to rock? I sure am. Cool. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. My path has never been straight. (laughs) That's pretty clear from my bio. It's been pretty fun, and I've let my curiosity guide me along the way. I grew up in Texas and didn't ever see the value of that place where I grew up because Mm -hmm. it seemed like kind of a wasteland, just a dry prairie kind of environment, a lot of feedlots for cattle, and not much else going on. And so I got out of there as soon as I could and then found my Myself not knowing quite what to do with a college degree and not knowing where to go next. And I ended up in the National Park Service with an internship. And that kind of opened my eyes to the rest of the world. <laughs> and I started working seasonal park ranger jobs. And sometimes that would lead me back closer to home. And sometimes that would lead me farther away. Throughout all of it, I was interested in photography. And I was doing some photography along the way, but when I wasn't working seasonally at the parks, I would usually go to work at a photo lab, mainly during the winter and times when I couldn't find a job elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So I had those two kind of dual passions, you know, working with images and art and also working outdoors and connecting people with the places they were visiting. I didn't really have any training to be a park ranger. I realized I really wanted to learn more about biology, ecology, just 
our whole life sciences that I kind of skimmed over because I focused on the humanities when I was in college. So I ended up going back to school and found a really cool program that no longer exists. It was in place for about three years at College of Santa Fe, which also no longer exists under that name. Mm -hmm. So there's not very many of us who have a degree in environmental documentation, which basically means we studied a lot about the environment and we studied a lot about storytelling and combined those two things. Wow. How fantastic is that? Yeah, it's a pretty perfect fit for me. So then I kept on working in parks and then trying to find ways to use my new skills with audio recording, video editing, more photography, and creative writing. Now I've also been equipped a little bit more to understand the natural world. Mm -hmm. So it gave me an even deeper appreciation. And so eventually I kind of went back home and worked at a, a state park, and it was miles and miles from any sort of city. It was in a tiny town of about 400 people and I felt really isolated and it gave me a lot of time to think. No radio, no TV, <laughs> just like what am I going to do? So I picked up some books that kind of set me on a new path and one of those was Barbara Kingsolver's Animal Vegetable Miracle. Oh yes, I'll tell you that has come up on the show many times. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those books that just sort of falls into your lap when you need it and it helped me get a better grasp on where does food come from. I had been learning things throughout environmental studies and everything about vegetarianism and I had been a vegetarian for nine years and had health problems and then ended up going back to meat and so I had been trying to educate myself about food as I was trying to stay in one place for more than one season. I was also starting to plant an herb garden in my little front yard, sort of just understanding what all this was about mm -hmm. <laughs> for the first time. But that eventually led me to going east and then west and east and west. <laughs> we kept going across the country. At some point, Kentucky got on my radar, <laughs> partially because of Barbara Kingsolver. There was a farm. I wanted to start woofing, in case somebody doesn't know. Woofing is worldwide opportunities on organic farms. And it's a big network of farms and volunteers that can connect and you can travel and stay. And I thought, okay, that's my next thing. Nice. Eventually, I went to Maine. I went to Colorado and between Maine and Colorado I visited Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> I visited a farm I was interested in. I had a good friend who I was connected with. We'd visit and go back and forth. And so I was like, okay, I want to be closer and try this out. And, you know, being in the Southwest most of my life, I could see how hard it was to farm. The only role models I had was cotton and cattle, mm -hmm. maybe a little corn here and there. Yeah, well, we're in Phoenix here, so we know firsthand what it takes to grow in the desert. Oh, gosh, it's just so challenging. I really respect people who can make the most of their resources. As I learned about cultures that survived over thousands of years, I started realizing how wasteful our culture is and how far we've come from being in touch with that. Yeah. And one of the places that I worked that kind of helped me understand a bigger picture of humanity was I worked at a flint quarry, which was an archaeological site. So people, you know, more than a thousand years ago were flint napping 
purchasing and trading this really precious tool. Uh-huh. I've never had any experience with tool making, and here I was trying to explain to visitors from all over the world why this was an important resource. And I think that's something that was also a tie to me figuring out that the place I came from was not a wasteland. Mm-hmm. There were really precious resources. We had a big wildfire at that park, and then the following year, for miles and miles, everywhere you looked, there were wildflowers blooming. It's amazing how that happens, isn't it? Yeah. And so I started trying to learn what those wildflowers were. I started studying ethnobotany and I made a little plant guide for the flowers in the park because a lot of these nobody had seen for 10 years or so because their seeds had just laid dormant. Wow. Yeah. It was just kind of weird that I went all over the place, came back home, worked at these parks closer to my roots. Mm -hmm. And then I started understanding more about survival and living off the land and what the land actually does provide if you just pay attention. So I ended up in Kentucky about five years ago, you know, thought, oh, this must be like an oasis. It rains, it's green, there's just no need to water a lawn, Mm -hmm. there's just grass everywhere and trees and fruit. But there's also a lot of blooming plants in the springtime that I was not used to. So it was a bit harsh on my respiratory system to jump in. I didn't stay on that farm as long as I expected to, so I moved into town to try to get acclimated. That's when I started working and volunteering with Seedleaf. And that's the nonprofit that I have a ton of respect for. Mm -hmm. And I could talk to you for an hour just about what they do. So bridging the gap between Seedleaf and you writing a book called The Woman Hobby Farmer. Tell me about that leap that you made. The leap is kind of big for me. I wasn't expecting anything like this to come along. I was uh, also volunteering and involved with a native plants group, an organization here that promotes landscaping with native plants called Wild Ones. Wild Ones is a national organization, so there's little chapters. And I got involved with them, and I started writing for their newsletter once a month. And that was the first time I had written anything that had been published. It was fun for me to just pick a topic and explore it. And I had studied creative writing, but I really hadn't used it in that way. Eventually, I got to start writing for Hobby Farms magazine. It was great because I knew the editor. <laughs> she oh. was a, a <laughs> nice. Friend. That's always a good bonus. And I met her through Seedleaf, so it's kind of this this little hub of network that there's little tendrils reaching out, and mm-hmm. one person leads to the next. Getting to write for Hobby Farms, I was writing maybe every two weeks for the online magazine. The editor asked me if I would write or co-author and edit the book Wildlife in Your Garden. So I jumped on that opportunity, had never done anything like that before. I just thought, oh, writing a book's like writing a bunch of articles and putting them together. (laughs) Well, not quite. Yeah, (laughs) it's harder than it looks. Oh, yes. So that came off pretty successfully, although it was was pretty stressful for me because I was moving in the middle of it and trying to figure out how to write a book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm grateful that that book was kind of a good starter with many articles that were handed to me that experts had written. And I just had to compile them and get them in order. And then I wrote additional parts. It goes from insects all the way up to bears and tries to kind of touch on a little bit of life along all of that scale. Yeah. So luckily, birders and butterfly experts and some bee experts had written great articles. So I didn't have to do those. Those sections are really well done. So I covered 
Some of the animals that we don't think about that much, like turtles and salamanders, you know, some animals that we kind of like to hate. Right. <laughs> you know, gophers. stinging insects, gophers, moles, foals, that kind of thing, and deer. You can love them or hate them. But my approach to the book, which I'm really grateful that the publisher didn't really give me many constraints. So I got to give it my perspective, which having been a park ranger for mm-hmm. many years, I was a little more concerned about wildlife than people's gardens honestly (laughs) that's kind of where my heart goes and I have to sort of find a way to say oh yeah it's okay to have both really I think it comes from a place of understanding and my training also as a park ranger was in interpretation I wasn't the kind of ranger who's carrying a gun and giving people tickets for Mm -hmm. doing bad things I was educating them and helping them connect with the resource that heart that you spoke to a moment ago in your first book that led to your next book, I would suspect. Yeah, and it was just about a year later, the same publisher came to me and said, would you write this book? (laughs) And I was a little surprised because they had just offered it to a very good friend and who was also writing for the magazine. And she told me about it. And then she said that she's going to say no. And then it came to me and I was like, hmm, (laughs) should I follow her way that she did and say no? Or should I try this? And I went for it because, again, the publisher was really open with me to be able to do it my way. I thought this would be a great way to just grab those documentary skills and put them to work. So I got to do longer interviews and spend a good amount of time with each person as long as they were able to spend a good amount of time with me. Exactly. And that's really what I valued in doing that work. Perfect. So the book, The Woman Hobby Farmer, there's a quote here that I was struck by that I want to kind of dig into a little bit. And this is you, your quote, regardless of gender identity, a feminine approach to farming is one that cherishes nature as the ultimate teacher and works with natural cycles to benefit humanity while enriching the soil and all the life that it feeds us. Say more about that because I kind of want to unpack it. When you label something gender-wise, you kind of exclude a lot of people. So, and I struggled with that for probably half the time I was writing the book. I was like, why is it about women? You know, I really had to kind of dig into gender issues and history of women's roles in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And really what I'm realizing is that I was turned off by agriculture to a large extent just because of the aggressiveness that it has towards the earth rather than being receptive and working with nature. And I see permaculture as a way to be receptive and work with nature and work with those flows. It feels very natural. And I can really connect and identify with that scheme of doing things. And I feel like the linear, you know, get from point A to point B with making the most profit along the way is, is not helpful for neither the land or the people involved. I think that the feminine approach is really addressing the feminine side of all of us, Mm -hmm. that we all have the masculine and we have the feminine. We have the yin and the yang. There's times when we need to push ahead and be really strong-willed to get something done. And there's times when we need to relax and listen and really sense what does this place need and what do I need from the place? And what is the other life that depends on this place? What do they need and how can I connect with it? When that other life was a lot of the stuff that you listed in your first book, all the way from bugs to bears, right? Exactly. (laughs) So how do we go about honoring the feminine in our yards? 
That's a great question. I think first of all is you get outside at least once a day and whether it's as you're leaving or as you're coming home, you just take 5, 10, 15 minutes to check in with the space. Mm -hmm. I like one of the people I interviewed, Melissa, in the book. She says, when I'm away, I, my place misses me. <laughs> and when I come home, I can tell we're glad to see each other again. And so that's one way to just be receptive. What's needing a little bit of water? What has really blossomed over the past day or two? That's also just being aware of your surroundings, being observant, letting all of your senses connect, not just sight, but smelling right. things, listening. It makes you a better neighbor as well. <laughs> a better neighbor? Is that what you said? Yeah. A better community member if you're aware of your surroundings too. Interesting. So I'm up early every morning. I'm usually up by between 4.30 and 5.30. Often my task involves me getting in front of a computer early on during the day. But the first thing I do every morning is I walk out into the front yard or the backyard. I check on the chickens. I check on the yard. I check in with the space always in my bare feet. For me, that's a connection that clicks me back into why I'm here. Yeah. Something about the contact of our skin on the earth probably ignites some of those memories and, and things that we don't have words for. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to express and that's okay. <laughs> we can just be there. What is the feminine approach to farming? I think that's pretty much what the whole book has to, <laughs> to go through. A lot of it is introspective. It's asking questions of yourself and finding what resonates with your values the most mm -hmm. before you take an action. It's being intentional and being intuitive. Those are some skills or tools that don't get sharpened very often in most of our society. So really, it sounds counter to being feminine, but it's also kind of being the leader, being the guide and knowing that you've got a whole community that you are working with and that community may not involve other people. It may be community of water and air, insects and mammals, but you're not alone. You're never alone in gardening. <laughs> that is the case. So you already kind of touched on this. So this approach isn't limited to only women. Can you say a little bit more about that? I think I've seen women around me who, when I bring this topic up, they get a little nervous and, you know, mm -hmm. nobody likes to say the F word, feminism. <laughs> and when I've brought it up, you know, like their partners or their husbands have been part of their stories for sure. It's not just about singling out this gender. However, women, for many different reasons, have not been given the credit that they are due when it comes to providing for their households and being farmers. But I think men also don't have, sometimes in their society, the world of suits and ties <laughs> and office buildings. Uh -huh. They don't necessarily have the freedom that women might get to experience with listening to their bodies and having to take time for themselves because if you're nine months pregnant, everybody understands, okay, it's all right if you need to take some time off. And men are kind of forced into this role of always being active or taking the lead. And I think they need to get permission to check in with themselves and check in with the land and check in with anything going on in the ecosystem where it's hard to see that they're actually doing anything. It's hard to know that you're farming when you're just sitting listening. 
<laughs> right. And so I think that's kind of where we need to just be okay with it more. And I don't know, do that other than just on a personal level with people we interact with and how we schedule our time and structure our days and what we expect out of those we work with. And most women farmers do not work with another female on their farm. So they really have an opportunity to set an example and and say like it's okay to take breaks it's okay to take your shoes off and feel <laughs> the dirt between your toes and do that for their husbands and do it for their sons and you know do it for all the men around them to let them know it's it's okay to be touchy-feely right <laughs> show their softer side so why is it important to have the feminine aspects of farming as part of the conversation well, mostly because it affects our health, our personal health, I think. Women are kind of first and most impacted by environmental toxins. You know, everything from breast tissue to ovarian tissue gets a lot of damage from toxins in our environment. So it's kind of like we're this alarm system that's oh, ringing right. and saying something is off. And if we can listen to that and then as a whole society and make some changes, you know, putting women's health in the forefront and realizing that it's directly connected to our soil and our air and our water quality. The big ag systems and what they do to our soil and our air and our water quality, it's a no-brainer, really. So I think that's why the women in that title, and that's what's important about it, is just letting this be a reason. If you care about the health of the women in your life, mm -hmm. then maybe you'll make a change in the food system, whether that means buying organic next time you go to the grocery store, or it may be it starting that farm you've always dreamed of. Right. So your book is not a how-to manual. What did you hope to share? I think it's more of a why-to manual. It brings a lot more attention to the wisdom that you already have within yourself. And while there's about 20 different women's perspectives in this book, some, you know, I spent three days with, some I just had a quick questionnaire with, but they all brought their wisdom to it. That doesn't mean that the reader doesn't have their own point of view. So mm -hmm. I included little workbook kind of questions that you can be meditating on as you work in the garden or just give it a little room for your own thoughts. Also planning space. One thing to do in gardening is to make your sketches, get a layout of how you want things, and then remind yourself as you go along, take notes, and then reflect back. We go through the whole year in a cycle of changes going on in nature, and we can also reflect and look at all the changes that we We've experienced in that year, whether you want to call a year just a season of growth or a calendar year. But the last section of the book is really about lessons learned and passing on that wisdom too. Everybody has the ability to be a teacher of something and everybody has the ability to be a student mm -hmm. <laughs> for their whole life. Right. So I think there's a, a great need to recognize in yourself what you've done, what you've accomplished, and then also look at what is it that I want to learn next and who can I learn that from? Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for that. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you learned from it. I tend to jump into the deep end <laughs> of things, and I think when I when I left home and started moving around, I didn't just go to any national park. I went to Death Valley National Park. Oh wow! So I went, <laughs> went off the deep end uh -huh. there, kind of, you know, just. But that was good because it's kind of sink or swim, and I thought that that would work when I moved to Kentucky and 
and came out to that farm. And I think that's one of the things that I felt like a failure because I only lasted a few weeks instead of six months as an apprentice. I took it pretty hard. This was a dream that I always wanted to live on a permaculture farm and, you know, really be in touch, live off the grid. And, and I was a little hard on myself about, oh, now I'm back in the city and I just didn't cut it. It wasn't tough enough. But I think what I learned from that, and I write about it in the book, there's an essay called Transplant Shock. It's about being gentle with myself and understanding that I can listen to myself. My body is part of nature. If I'm listening to nature and I'm listening to my body, then I can understand what I need and when I need it. And my allergies so bad. I felt for the first time in my life like I had asthma and I was a little freaked out. So I really had to find a place that was safe for me to mm -hmm. deal with just the environmental differences of being in this place. That was good because that led me to all these new opportunities. And just last weekend, I went back to that farm and I spent the weekend there doing a permaculture workshop. Oh, nice. And it was just amazing to, to think back at how I came to be a stronger person through that experience. And I'm still closely tied to those people out there and the, the great work that they're doing. So it wasn't just like burning my bridges and, oh, I failed and I'll never go do that again. It yeah. was just finding a different way of continuing that dream. Beautiful. So you've mentioned the word permaculture a couple of times. Have you done a permaculture design course? No, I haven't. However, well, jumping in the deep end again, I ended up working at a middle school that was a Montessori-based school that mm -hmm. was brand new, a brand new building that had been revitalized in an urban area, and they wanted someone to basically teach the kids how to create a permaculture farm. Oh, nice. <laughs> I had started reading about permaculture back about 10 years ago when I was in Texas, isolated by myself and reading up on anything inspiring that I could find and read about the One Straw Revolution and was really interested in, in all of this, but it really wasn't until I came out to Kentucky that I actually experienced a place that was legitimately a permaculture farm. Mm -hmm. With very little experience, I jumped into teaching middle schoolers. <laughs> you never learn something as quick as when you have to teach it. This book really helped. It was the Permaculture Handbook by Peter Bain. Oh, yes. I really referred to it a lot. You know, there's some good videos, too. And then there was a place in Colorado I connected with, which is the Colorado Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute. I had been there a few times and seen the work they were doing and helped do some writing about their greenhouses. So just that little bit of experience led me to thinking, oh, I could teach. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was another learning experience. We got it started, and then I moved on because I realized I wasn't in the right position. Also, so with Seedleaf, I kind of incorporated a lot of permaculture ideas. They're a community gardening nonprofit that takes what is considered blighted land in these small little downtown pockets uh -huh. and creates community gardens. There's no better place to do permaculture than that because you've got tons of resources like there's cardboard and wood chips. People. People, right. <laughs> we could get tons of volunteers to come out and do a raised garden build and 
do food forests, mushroom inoculation, and all that good stuff. Oh, nice. And so that was a place to kind of experiment with it because nobody's really counting on selling that at a market. You know, you're not having to feed your family from it. So community gardens are an awesome place to try out permaculture, even though permaculture really requires years and years of interacting with the site. But I think if you feel like you have a little wiggle room and you're not dependent on making a profit in the first year or anything Mm -hmm. like that, and you're interested in those ideas, you can try it out in a community garden. Being a permaculturist for over 28 years now, I think I've been studying permaculture and observing. I don't know that it requires a lot of time on the land. It requires a lot of observation on the land. And that speaks to your feminine piece. Standing back and paying attention to what's going on in the space is a really, really important piece of working in the flow. Exactly. So what do you consider your biggest success? I think that this book might be my biggest success right now. Of course, it feels fresh, but it also brings a lot of my personal heroes and friends together in one place, and it incorporates some of my life story. I see it as this big web of my skills and my life, along with the people around me and my community. It incorporates some of the skills that I've been wanting to use and I've just, you know, had on the back burner. Mm-hmm. And it also recognizes that all my wandering around and trying these crooked paths and not quite fitting in, it was worthwhile. <laughs> so what drives you? I think that it's partially, it's two parts. One is knowing what I don't want and being able to recognize it and move away from it. And then knowing what I do want and moving towards it. And that's really as simple as just feeling good. (laughs) My own health has improved immensely since I started gardening. That's just an immediate feedback. It doesn't really take much time to know that if I eat a good meal, I'm going to feel better that day. And if I spend time in nature, if I spend time with animals, if I spend time with people who love being in nature and around animals, we all feel better. And it's just like, okay, let's just do more of this. (laughs) Right. It sounds a little selfish, but really it's like if I feel good doing something, then I know it's worthwhile. Hey, let me use the cliche metaphor. If the plane's going down, put your oxygen mask on first. Right. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, I'm kind of going out on a limb. I think this is something I'm going to laugh at myself about later. It's The Clan of the Cave Bear. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we haven't had that one. Tell me about it. So I never read it as a young person, which I guess a lot of middle school and high school people read it. And it's a classic. My mom had it on her bookshelf, and I remember seeing it and wondering what that was about. I just read it after I finished this book. I kind of was on this whole feminist kick, and it kind of jumped out at me at a used bookstore. I really got obsessed with it because it was about a woman who's trying to learn how to live off the land by following her elders. And her elders are different than she is, but still they know everything there is to know about all the herbal plants or all the healing plants, all of the animals and their habits. Not taking too much from the earth, not killing every animal in your path, but understanding and working with natural cycles. I'm probably making it sound very romantic 
romanticized and idealized. But there's also a woman who's learning to create stone tools, and that brought me back to my days at the Flint Quarry. <laughs> oh, wow. Learning how to survive in a society that's different than how she feels is her natural way of being. So there's a lot of those themes that I could identify with. The books I've really valued have been both instructional and inspirational. And I think this is one, like, I may not go back and reread every word of it, but I'll skim back through the parts where she's finding some good healing herbs and she's making the tools and the sling and those kinds of things. So it's some of the skills that we've lost. It's cool just to read about. Here's somebody spending 500 pages (laughs) describing in detail about it. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? It's going to be real simple, and that is just don't grow something that you don't like to eat and do grow what you do like. And that's kind of just a way to suit your own taste. For me, I don't like tomatoes. I do like pasta sauce and that kind of thing. Plenty of people around me grow tomatoes, and I can make pasta sauce. (laughs) I don't have to grow it. If there is a community to connect with to get what you need, that's what I have to remind myself of sometimes is that I don't have to do it alone. There's always help. I can focus on what it is that I really, really enjoy doing, and someone else can do the stuff I don't like as much. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Karen. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. How can our listeners get a hold of you? I've got a website, and it is my business name, which is Kala Creative. That's K-A-L-A-C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E dot net colacreative.net. The books are for sale there, as well as links to all my blogs and workshops that I'm doing and anything else that you might want to get in touch with me about. Perfect. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash creative. That's K-A-L-A-C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Healthy food is something that everybody wants. Delicious and nutritious and right outside your own door is even better. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or visit IWANTTOGARDEN.COM and you will receive our free webinar about seven key factors you need to know to grow your own healthy food. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.